Today we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're beginning a section that I call the ethics, the ethical section of where the he's been talking about the identity of the Christian in chapter 1. He's talked about how we're chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined, how we've been adopted into the family of God. Uh, in chapter 2, he's talked about how God did a miracle uh, inside of us by raising us spiritually from the dead out of the uh, power and grip of the prince of the power of the air. That's Ephesians 2, 2. And then uh, he incorporated us into the people of Israel, made us part of God's chosen people. That's the last section of the, of the second chapter. And in chapter 3, Paul says, I was raised up to declare this, that this is so, that we are uh, part of the people of God, uh, part of the family of God in the community of faith now, uh, even as Gentiles. Then in chapter 4, he has begun by saying uh, we, are, we all have one faith, whether Jew or Gentile, when you come to Christ, you have one faith, there's one Lord, there's one God and Father of all. It just uh, surpasses all denominations, uh, all races, creeds, geography, every boundary is crossed. Now that we are this new people, chapter 4, verse 17 begins a section in which uh, we would say the rubber meets the road here. This is a very practical, ethical application of the true Christian faith. If I am a Christian, how should I live? What are the implications in my daily life? And the first thing that we'll point out here is that Paul comes with an assumed authority. There's three big assumptions here, and one is that he assumes that he has authority to tell us how to live. Uh, notice how he puts it in chapter 4, verse 17. This I say and testify in the Lord. What is testify? Well, uh, a testimony or testify is an, uh, it's a very solemn, serious thing in which, you know, you take the, the witness and you put them in the, the witness box and you, they have to swear under oath on penalty of perjury that what they're saying is, is right. A, a witness is not somebody, when you testify, you're not giving an opinion. It's not how I feel about it. This is not my preference. This, this is my testimony. This is what I have observed. Here are the facts. Now, when Paul says, I testify, he's not giving us an opinion of men. He's giving us what he knows to be is a divine revelation and the facts that are from heaven. And he says, I testify in the Lord. That means in communion with the Lord, listening to God. And I'm, I testify in the Lord, in his presence. The Apostle Paul had this remarkable sense of the presence of God when he would write or speak. 
Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. In the presence of God, he's writing to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ and in the presence of the elect angels, I commission you to keep these commandments. What a statement. And Paul was in prison when he wrote that. 1 Timothy 5, 21. I, in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ and surrounded by the elect angels, I commission you to keep these commandments. He had this awareness of the invisible realm and of God's presence and of Jesus Christ standing there right with him, surrounded and protected by angels. Whenever he would write or whenever he would speak, God called him particularly to write part of the New Testament and to be this first century apostle. As an example of his awareness of authority from God, uh, let me give to you, and I think we have this on... Uh, on the board here, First Thessalonians two thirteen. What this is an amazing statement by the apostle. He says, "We thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is." The word of God, which is now at work in you. Paul writes to these Thessalonians, and he says, I, when I came to you and I preached to you, you listened and you heard me preaching, but you accepted it for what it really was, not the words of men, but the very word of God. Now that was the preaching um, and the reception he got in Thessalonica. The way it that it works is something like this. There's a transfer of authority and vocabulary from God to men that goes like this. God, the Father, gave a message to Jesus. This is in John 12. Give me that next one up. John 12, 49. Jesus said this, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me the commandment what to say and what to speak. Jesus did not just simply go around talking and giving an opinion on the various issues of the day. Jesus only spoke when the Father told him something to say. So that when Jesus spoke, that was God's words being transferred to men. That's why you do not have a lot going on in Jesus' early life. Well, I mean, you don't. You have one instance when he was 12 years old, he appears in the temple. Other than his birth and that one instance, there's a whole 30-year section there where you don't hear anything from Jesus. Because, G, because there wasn't any word from God at that time. Now, when, when he's about 30, Jesus starts to talk. And it's written down. Because when, when Jesus began to speak publicly, then the Father was giving him the words to say. And that's why you have that John 12, 49. The Father who sent me tells me what to say. I'm not just going around talking. 
But then in John 17, 8, Jesus says this, the words that you, Father, have given to me, I have now transferred to them, to the apostles. And so that the, tr the transference goes from the Father to the Son and from the Son, Jesus Christ, to the apostles who then write it down in the words that we hold in our hands. And this is one of the things that we, as a Christian, that a lot of times we grapple with this. How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? And how, and how did we get the Bible? Yes, it is written by men, but it is the words, it is the revelation, and it is the teaching that comes from the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit given to the apostles and through the apostles, and that word which we hold in our hands today. And what an amazing thing that we hold God's own conversation and message and communication to us, and we have it written in front of us. For 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 gives us also an idea on this. He says, above all, above all the things that, uh, of your faith, you must understand this, that no prophecy or writing of the Scripture came about by the prophet's own thinking. For it, the Scriptures never had its origin in the will of man. That is, he didn't just decide one day, some, no a man didn't just decide one day, I think I'm going to write a, a verse in, for the Bible. No writing ever had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke and wrote from God as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit inspired them, taught them, gave them the exact vocabulary to use, like redemption and reconciliation and justification and sanctification. We, we wouldn't normally use those words. But God's Holy Spirit moved them and they penned those words and wrote those words down so that what we have is the revelation of God to us. Billy Graham, um, when he was a young evangelist, still in his 20s, uh, struggled with whether the Bible was reliable. His biographer, John Pollock, tells how uh, he had a close friend named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was also uh, an evangelist and a college roommate with Billy Graham. And he began to question things and talk to Billy Graham. And, and uh, actually, he was, uh, between him and Billy Graham, was often viewed as the better preacher of the two. And he, he told Billy Graham one day, he said, Billy, I, I really have serious questions about the Bible about uh, chronologies, about the science, about the evolution issues. I, and, and frankly, he said, I, I I'm, have severe doubts. I'm going to go on to Princeton, to seminary there. I want you to come with me. And uh, Billy Graham said, I, I don't want to go to school in the States. I will go outside the States. We'll go to Oxford. We'll go somewhere in England. We'll go anywhere you want to go, but not in the States. And he said, and I promise you I'll do it. And he reached out his hand, but Templeton said, no, I'm going to Princeton. And in that moment, both their lives were changed. Charles Templeton went to Princeton. His doubts increased. Billy Graham decided not to pursue further education and, and has preached in the past 50 or 60 years 
to probably over a billion people, literally. But Charles Templeton, in his doubts, uh, tried to talk Billy Graham into following him to Princeton. And Billy Graham knew, he said, I don't have answers to these questions. But he got out his Bible, and this is in the, in the biography by Pollock. He says, I got my Bible, Billy Graham says, and I went out in the woods, and in the light of the moon I came to this large stump. And I put my Bible up on the stump. And I knelt down in front of that Bible and I prayed to God, and I prayed this prayer. I said, oh God, I do not know the answers to some of the questions that Charles and other people are asking. But he said, I accept this book that you have given by faith as the very word of God. And he began to preach it, and God blessed it. And I don't know if he got all his questions answered, but I know the blessing of God came on it. Now, and this is, this is the decision that we have to make. We are never going to have answers to all the questions. But we can trust God. And we can put our faith in Him that He has given us a revelation and He has given us a book. He has given us a covenant that's been written down and written out. And we can follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And that is what the apostle is doing here. He said, I'm testifying to you. I'm, I'm not just giving an opinion. This is in the presence of God, surrounded by the angels and the, and the heavenly Father sending me. And he said, I am telling you this. There, he is assuming a tremendous authority as an apostle before God when he speaks here, when he writes. So here is, here is the... A second thing, not only is there an assumption that he has authority as an apostle, but secondly, there's an assumption that there is, that humanity in general is a, has a fallen nature. And this is what you have in verse 18. He says, I don't walk as they do, verse 17, in the futility of the minds, for they are darkened in their understanding." And they have been separated from the life of God. Their understanding is not right. It's going to take more than a Harvard education to fix their minds. That's what Paul is saying. The problem with humanity is not the lack of education. It is the character and the condition of their heart. That is what Paul is saying here. He says they are darkened. Who's they? Those who are outside of Christ. Those who are not Christians. Those who He's writing to the Ephesian church who have believed in Christ, who have been changed and transformed. And he says, don't live like they do because their minds are darkened. They don't think right. And he goes on and he says in verse 18, they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, verse 19, and gave, them over to, gave themselves to sensuality, and they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They are sinful, they are darkened, they are ignorant, they are hard in their hearts, and they are increasing 
in their separation and alienation from God the Father. Now, that's not a condit. Paul is not criticizing. He's not saying, oh, those awful Gentiles. Oh, those awful sinners. He's not, he's not putting them down. He is analyzing. He's, he's analyzing the human heart apart from Christ. He's saying, this is the way they are. This is the way you were. Don't live like they are since you're not one of them. The, the issue here, that, and I just want to revisit this for a, a moment, but um, how does one view the nature of humanity? What, are we good or bad or neutral by nature? And what the apostle would say is that by nature we are sinful. Not good, not neutral. I mean, I recognize that, uh, and Paul would recognize that you're driving along, you see a turtle in the road, you can stop and get out and move the turtle, and oh, that's so sweet, and, and move on, and, you know, or go around a, swir- a squirrel who's darting across. I mean, we, we understand all that. Jesus said in Matthew 7, if you, being of a sinful nature, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who's good in heaven Give good things to them that ask him. So even Jesus recognizes that a sinful nature is not incompatible with reasonable behavior. But the question is, what is the nature of man apart from God and the transforming power of grace? And it is sinful, it is selfish, it is manipulative, it is opportunistic, it is proud, it is envious, it is jealous, it is hostile to authority, especially God's authority, it is irreverent. That is the nature of man, apart from God's grace. And it does not know the simplest apart from God, where you came from, how to, that whether you live forever, uh, how to be forgiven, who is God, how do, I, how do I be reconciled to God, how do I know I'm going to heaven? You cannot know these things. You don't get this in Harvard. You get this in the Bible. I was at the fitness center one day this week, and I usually just go and kind of mind my own business and uh, and uh, there was a nice looking gentleman on, uh, next to me there and, and uh, he was jogging along and like that you know and I was you know walking and uh, a very polite nice looking amiable personality he noticed I had a built up shoe and he said something to me he said um, you know um, that that is uh, not uncommon. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I've had mine about all my life. And uh, so I started asking him about his life. He graduated from Notre Dame, or not Notre he went to Notre Dame and then graduated finally from U of M. Um, obviously uh, financially comfortable, now retired. And I thought, here's an intelligent man. I I'll enjoy coming and seeing him and chat with him and, I don't know, maybe even inviting the church. And, and, uh, but then he said this. He said, did you know that you chose 
to have one short leg before you were born? That your previous life caused you to choose your present body? Well, right then I knew <laughs> there's no way this guy's going to give me the truth. He said uh, he studied reincarnation for years, had now left the Catholic Church, and decided that we chose our lives as alien beings. Uh, he quoted University of Wisconsin professor Helen Wambach, a book called Life Before Life, that had done a lot of research with uh, hypnosis. 2,000 people. She had hypno hypnotized 2,000 people. And by the way, hypnosis is dangerous in research because it can be hijacked by demon powers. They can feed a, hypn a person whose brain is just shifted into neutral, and they can feed them with ideas and thoughts, and out of their mouth will come things that you think is coming from their experiences when it's actually coming from demon experiences. So, you, that, so that's how these demon powers deceive. But see, if you're a University of Wisconsin professor, you don't even believe in evil spirits. You don't even believe in the devil. So he said to me, he said, I have embraced this teaching. Um, and he went on to tell me that the U.S. government has now contacted at least 10 alien races and sent an ambassador to one of them and that the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, was actually an alien from the water planet Elanga in the Sirius star system. <laughs> I, my first thought was, I am no longer the psycho. <laughs> The, I, and I, I said, because we had both stopped at this time, and he was leaning in because he thought he had a potential convert here, and I said, I, said I, I am a Baptist pastor, so you're probably not going to get far with me. He said, that's all right, that's all right. I said, but I would like to write down some of the things you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I did. I wrote, I said, now, what's, what's the... Where is God's, uh, the water planet Elanga, E-L-A-G-A, how do you spell that? Sirius star system? He said, yep, you put it right there. And he knew who I was. I wrote it down. I'm sure he knew that I was going to be using this as an illustration. <laughs> Why is he wrong? He said to me, I have done research all my life. I have read all this stuff. How do I know he's wrong? Because the Christian faith is going to place him outside the mainstream, to say it lightly. He's going to place, going to place him and his beliefs and all of those university professors outside the mainstream, and you're going to find that most of the people who promote and write on this are, are professors. Again, verse 18, they are darkened 
in their understanding. Why? Because they don't have enough education? No, because they are separated from the life of God that is in them. They're separated from the life of God. They don't know God because of their ignorance and their hardness of heart. Their problem is a spiritual problem. It's not a scientific issue. It's not an it's not a intellectual discussion. It is a spiritual issue. You come to God through Jesus Christ according to His Word and then discuss with me where you think the origins of man fall. Where, how did we get here? Let's talk about it after you come to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit according to His Word. Then we'll discuss evolution. Otherwise, we're, all, we're just out in darkness, feeling our way and groping through life. When I was in, in college, this is my first year in college, and I came across professors who, this is in a religious school, by the way, uh, and they told me and the class that there is no way that Jesus could have done the miracles that he did and that the Bible is true, uh, and that Christianity is like any other religion, and uh, filled me with such doubts that I seriously doubted my call to preach and my uh, faith in Christ. And so I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I got a hold of a book called Why I Believe the Bible by Dr. W.A. Crystal, pastor at First Baptist Dallas, Ph.D., reads the, he's uh, now with the Lord, but... At the time, he would read the New Testament in Greek for his daily devotions. Very learned man. He wrote a, Bible called, wrote a book called Why I Believe the Bible. I read that book, and I realized this is answering every single issue my professors have raised. Every question they brought up, he had, he had it answered right there. And I came away from that book thinking, in fact, that book put me back in the ministry. But I came away thinking, for every question and every doubt that I ever have, somebody, somewhere, has an answer. In the Christian faith, there's an answer some, somewhere, and somebody's got it, and I'm just going to trust God till I get to that person. Now, that's what I recommend that you do. Not that you can't ask questions, or that you have doubts, or that anything along those lines, but that you... Put them on the shelf and wait on God to show you some things. Somebody, somewhere, has an answer for every real question that you have on the Christian faith. And if you give God enough time, He'll bring them across your path. And I've found that to be true. I asked this guy at the fitness center, I said, let me ask you something. Do you believe that you know more than the apostles in the first century? He said, oh yeah. Now that's an issue. Here's what a Christian is. He's somebody that has said, I believe God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus and that Jesus passed it on to the apostles and the apostles laid it out there for us and I have believed the doctrine that the apostles have given us as written in the Holy Bible. And that's what I believe. That's what a Christian is. And that's an assumption. Now, if you don't take that, everything's somebody's opinion. 
And it also means that, dear people, we, I have to preach this book. This is the, I'm not giving you, I should not, I must not give you a Reader's Digest version or a, or a, a synopsis or an analysis of, a, of statistics of people's surveys. I must give you what God has given to us through the Holy Book of God. That is the preaching that will feed your soul. So when he said he knew more than the apostles, I said, yeah, you think so, but so does everybody else. He told me this. He said, Larry, and he pointed at me, and he said, Larry, follow your heart. My heart. Really? (laughs) Have you seen what's in my heart? You do not want me to follow my heart. My heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. But I thought of this verse, Proverbs 28, 26. He that trusts his own heart is a fool. He that trusts, just follow your heart. What does your heart tell you? Your heart will tell you to do the strangest, weirdest things. It will tell you to depart from your God. That's what your heart will tell you. He that trusts his own heart, Proverbs 28, 26, is a fool. So what do we follow? We follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his written word. That is what we follow. That's what I'm following. And you follow me as I follow it. If I stop from following it, then you stop from following me. He assumes his authority as an apostle... He assumes the fallen nature of man. And then there's a third thing that the apostle assumes here before he starts practically applying these truths. And that is he assumes the power of a conversion. Now look at this. In verse 20, that though, that sensuality giving yourself up to every kind of impurity with increasing gall, That is not the way, verse 20, that you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you heard of him and were taught in him. Assuming, notice this is an assumption. I'm assuming that you've experienced the power of a conversion. I think there's people that listen to preaching and read the Bible and they just walk away and say, I don't get that. That... But they haven't experienced the power of a conversion. There is such a thing as being genuinely, powerfully, truly converted to Jesus Christ. And then there are people who have just been baptized or just went forward or just cried or just got a catharsis or whatever they've had. But he's, look at verse 20 again. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. It's like a school, and Christ is the subject or the topic. Verse 21, assuming that you've heard him, is one translation. In other words, Christ is the teacher as well as the topic. And we're taught in him, that is the environment, like Paul speaking. He's like the classroom. Jesus is like the topic and the teacher and the classroom, the setting in which the topic is taught. So Paul is assuming that they have so learned Christ. And 
verse 22, that, and the, this is a past tense in the Greek text, so it's verse 22, and that you have put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt. And verse 23 is a continual tense, and are now being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have put it off, that is, you've been converted, and you're now being renewed. And you have put on the new nature, verse 24, which is created after the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, there's a new nature that comes out. Something happens inside you. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 gives us an illustration of those who come in, have an experience in Christianity... You can have an experience but not actually be changed in your nature. And he compares them to a dog that returns to its vomit and a pig, after washing itself, returns to wallowing in the mud. It's a very... Uh, I was raised on a farm and I've seen these pigs get in the mud. They love it. And uh, it's like uh, they get crusted over. And it kind of protects them from the insects. But they wallow in the mud. Or a dog that vomits it up, its food, and feels better momentarily, then thinks, eh, I think I'll go back and eat that one more time. <laughs> the, uh, and I've seen, uh, I, my grandpa put a hose on a, pig wash it off but it's right back in it there are people he says like the pig after washing returns to wallowing in the mire see the issue is it's still the same nature Christianity is not being cleaned up on the outside first of all it is being changed on the inside where the old nature has been put off by the power of God, and so now it's appropriate that outward behavior match the inner nature that is new. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying be something you're not. He's saying be what you are. You are changed on the inside. You have put off the old, the old nature. Now, put on an outward conduct that is appropriate to the inner nature. Let me give you this, and I'm done this morning, but in Luke 15, it gives us the illustration of the prodigal son going to the pig pen. And he says, he left the father's house, took his inheritance and squandered his picture of the sinner who leaves God. And he goes and he, all the food he can find in a time of famine was in the pig pen. He's sitting there with a bunch of pigs. Give me that next one. He's sitting, and he's thinking, my father's house has all, a lot of food. I'm going home. And Jerry Vines, pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, he says that, imagine the prodigal son is coming home to the father. And this is a little addition to the scripture. But suppose he took a pig with him. And the father receives the son. He says, I'm so glad you're home. Kisses the son. 
And the son says, and this is my friend, the pig. He, we, were in, we were in famine together, and we, we became close friends. And so he wanted to accompany to the father's house. So I said, come on, my father will receive you. <clears throat> we have plenty of food. So the, the father says, son, you need a new robe. You need sandals on your feet. You guys need to take a bath, clean up. And the pig's like, ugh, clean up. So they both clean up. They both go in and sit at the table. The pig sitting uncomfortably perched in his chair alongside the sun. And the pig sees the food and starts to climb up on the table. And the sun says, hey, stop that. You can't just climb up on the table and then wallow in the food. The pig's like, oh, I hate these rules. You got to use forks and spoons and wait on everybody, and then they're going to pray. And why don't we just dump, jump in? And the pig just says, "You know what? I was wrong. I think I'll go back to the pig pen." And then Jury Vine said this. He said, "Ultimately, the pig will always go back to his pig pen." And the son will always go back to his father's house. Yes. Ultimately, the pig will not be long in the father's house. And the son will not be long in the pig's pen. Most of us know what it's like to go to a pig pen. And I'm talking about morally and spiritually. But thank God, we're here today. Amen? We're, we didn't stay. Take that, devil. We're here today. Bad weather and all, here we are in the Father's house, eating at the Father's table, the bread, the manna from heaven, glory to God. I'm in the Father's house. Despite all the devil could do and the flesh wanted to do, it is not strong enough to keep me away here I am in the Father's house. 